Hello. Hello. Hello and welcome back to Industry Tactics. This a special edition, the audiobook version of Mortadella is Donkey Meat. Tales from an Italian-Canadian Weirdo, as read by me, your loyal host, and today, author. The book can be ordered now from FriendlyRich.com, my website. Just click on the book section, and we'll send you a copy with illustrations from Gregory Pepper. Better yet, come to my launch shows, if you're in the Guelph area, on Thursday, June 6th at Silence, or in Toronto on Sunday, June 9th at 7 p.m. for these book launches. That'll be at the Lula Lounge as part of the Lula World Festival. So we'll see you at the book launches and enjoy it now. Here it comes, the audiobook version of Mortadella is Donkey Meat. is Donkey Meat, Tales from an Italian-Canadian Weirdo, by Friendly Rich, edited by Andrew Wilmot, with illustrations that you can't see by Gregory Pepper. Order the book, would ya? Selection number one, The Sick Squirrel. When I was a boy, my Grandpa Joe had a garden full of juicy tomatoes and a fig tree that was bigger than his tool shed. Every year in the fall, he would bury that fig tree underground, which allowed him to grow a tropical fruit in Canada. My Grandpa cherished that garden, and those figs were really great in the summertime. He also had a grapevine from which he squeezed his own wine though sometimes he'd share the wine with his family, mostly he'd drink it all himself, for breakfast even. But all wasn't so peachy and figgy. Grandpa had his sour grapes, like all of us. I'll never forget that one summer. Grandpa was struggling with a stubborn squirrel that kept eating his wonderful figs, plums, and grapes. I never saw somebody go into defense mode with quite so much focus and persistence as my Grandpa Joe. He set a trap, placing a barrel full of a week's worth of urine with a blanket on top, rigged with nuts to attract the squirrel. He's going to eat my nuts and then drink my piss, said Grandpa. My brother and I were excited. We were hunting a squirrel. In today's world, people might question my Grandpa's actions his right to defend what was his. People in today's world might say, your Grandpa Joe was cruel for trying to kill a squirrel. That's a life nonetheless. Well, eat my nuts and drink my piss. This story doesn't take place in today's world. 
The squirrel hopped up on the blanket to grab the nuts and fell through into the urine and started to squeal. Then it miraculously jumped out with a nut in its mouth, resembling a cigar. It was almost as if the squirrel were smiling at my grandpa, saying, You'll have to try harder than that, old man. And so he did. A week later, he had rigged up a homemade trap with wires and a spring-loaded mechanism. He slathered on some peanut butter, and soon after his nemesis appeared, whack! The trap caught the squirrel on the first lick. My brother and I looked at the squirrel as it stared at us in fear. No quick escape this time. It knew what was coming. My grandpa fearlessly took his old knife, the one his father had given him, and he grabbed that squirrel by its squirming body and chop off flew its tail. The squirrel shrieked in pain, a sound I hope to never hear again in this miserable lifetime. Don't eat my figs, Grandpa said, as he released the injured, tailless squirrel. Blood trickled from its sorry butt as it scurried off to form a scab. For years after, we'd see that funny-looking rodent still munching on my Grandpa's fruits. That squirrel had earned its place in our garden. I secretly think even my Grandpa respected it after that, for stubbornness to an Italian is a virtue. Every year, Grandpa would travel back to Italy... One year, they confiscated his heirloom pocket knife as he was passing innocently through customs. And so, this knife, stained with years of precious blood and story, now sits at the bottom of the acquired stuff bin at Pearson International Airport, void of any killing, peeling, or folklore. There was a reason my grandfather would sit silently at the dinner table, thinking about that knife with every angry cut. Selection number two, don't trust nobody. Don't trust nobody, not your ma, not your pa. Don't trust nobody, not your sis, not even your bra. Not your dirty old priest. Don't you even trust me. Oh, pray. 
Selection number three, Grand Antonio. Every summer while growing up, we'd visit my mother's family in Montreal. On a sticky August night in the mid-80s, after watching Die Hard in the theater, we were walking along Rue St. Catherine and saw him, a giant man with gray teeth and dusty skin. He was sitting on the street corner on a piece of cardboard and even while sitting, he still towered over us. He was chanting something about rocks and bowling balls and bastards and French cuisine. As we crossed the street, my aunt said to my mom, Do you know who that was? It was Grand Antonio, the famous Montreal strongman, known for pulling cars with his teeth. Guess we saw him past his prime, barking on the street corner and missing quite a few teeth. Selection number four, Ode to Tia Laura. I have an aunt in Montreal who is not from this planet. She lives across from the Jean Talon market, where she scratches lottery tickets daily. The gray dust from the scratchers make it into her nightly spaghetti sauce. She cluck clucks around the garden like a duck woman with cat whiskers and a heart of gold. Weird sounds emanate from her mouth like ping-a-pang and wee She exists among us with a cold cellar full of hanging mystery meats and a fig tree the size of a giant pine. She is a giant pine cone of a woman. When she leaves this planet, she will not be replaced. Selection number five, Benito Benedito. My parents were married in Montreal's Little Italy in the Church of the Madonna della Difesa, a.k.a. the Church of the Blessed Mary's Virgin Supper-type defense squad. Outside the church, a large bronze soldier and a plaque commemorating victims of all wars greeted passers-by, because nothing says peace like a good war image. That particular church has always had a creepy vibe for me, with its never-ending reverberation making any word of God unintelligible or the fact that famous mobster funerals are held there, commingling with us non-mobby types. Speaking of, I recall having my grandmother's funeral there, and when my brother and I looked up at the magnificent fresco above, we nearly dropped the casket. It was hard to miss the image of Benito Mussolini, the fascist Italian dictator, 
on a horse with two cronies dressed in black behind him. Not exactly the spiritual scene you expect to see painted on a church ceiling. Apparently, word has it that Benito the Bald, failed violinist, sent a boatload of money to Montreal just before World War II, requesting like any good egomaniac that his likeness be splattered on the fresco above. Where are the modern-day rebels? It's a little late to respond, but let's get up there with a scaffold and turn Mussolini's face into Jim Henson's. Now that's a church I could get behind. Selection number six. How to slaughter a lamb. I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, and around the time recycling was introduced, we received a blue box from the city of Brampton. Little did we know that we'd be filling ours with lamb's blood. My family came from Pico, a small town in Italy just south of Rome, the Brampton of Italy. Back in Italy, it was a tradition to slaughter your own meat. My grandparents brought that same tradition to Canada when they came here in the 1950s. My grandma would cut the head off a chicken as nonchalantly as lighting a cigarello. Heck, some days I used to watch her make such a kill with a lit cigarello already dangling from her calm lower lip. Those were the days. You see, she came from a generation that did not rely on GroceryGateway.com to provide for a family. My grandpa was the same. He had a knife that traced back to his father's father's father. It accompanied his father to Ethiopia when he was a soldier in Mussolini's bullshit colonial war. The same knife also accompanied him back from Ethiopia and watched as he quickly lost his mind. And there was that very knife in my garage in suburban Brampton in the late 1980s. It had just been sharpened and my grandpa Joe was ready to stick it into a lamb's jugular. My father was behind him holding the lamb's torso with my uncle Vince behind him holding the lamb's hind legs. My brother and I stood behind all of them to watch the lamb take its last shit. We were lined up tallest to shortest, like Russian dolls, generations of lamb slaughterers, all eager to get on with the kill. In went the knife. As they held the lamb's head over the blue recycling box, it bad its last bah filtered through the phlegmatic sounds of blood passing through its throat. Blood was everywhere. The lamb shook like hell, and a thousand shit pellets rifled out of its ass. As my Uncle Vince held its fighting back legs, luckily these men were pros, and had preset a line of old newspapers behind its ass in anticipation, baptizing the Brampton Guardian with a last dropping. I suppose this is something to keep in mind if you're going to murder any living thing. It will probably shit itself and you should plan ahead. Though the energy was still intense, they let go of the lamb and its warm, dead body flopped off to the side. Then came the real fun. My dad took my bicycle pump and inserted it into the lamb's leg, right above the hoof. He pumped the lamb up, and it was noticeably bloated, then grabbed my hockey stick and began to tap it all over. Suburban love taps. Finally, he removed the bike pump, and the corpse deflated. This silly process, using all of my recreational goodies, was to help separate the lamb's skin from the muscles. My grandpa took it from there and began using his magic knife to skin the animal. I remember the smell of game and blood, the smoothness of its skin, the warmth 
in its fresh, dead body. The images were pretty grotesque to a kid who hadn't seen that sort of stuff before, but in retrospect, I'm really thankful I got to experience the entire process. Then they laid the lamb's pelt out flat on the floor and cut into its body, attempting to remove the stomach first. And no matter what you do, you must ensure that you don't pierce the lamb's stomach, otherwise it will smell like a football stadium's worth of farts. One year, when we slaughtered our Easter lamb in Uncle Joe's garage, he accidentally placed the stomach down too casually, and it split like an egg yolk. It took them months to wash away that smell. An hour later, my grandma Sandy brought the lamb's balls in on a dish covered in tomato sauce, offering my grandpa the freshest of delicacies. He declined. Selection number seven, my great-grandpa. My great-grandpa came back from Ethiopia, smelling like a pure dystopia. He was short a full deck. My great-grandpa sleeping in the cold cellar. He was such a weird, weird fella. He was short a full deck. He lost his mind just in time for the Hitler-Mussolini crusade. My great-grandpa came back from Addis Ababa. He was blabbing like a foolish baby with nothing to say. He lost his mind just in time for the Hitler-Mussolini crusade. He sang yippa yippa beam bam boom
Selection number eight, The Family Tree. My grandpa Joe lived in a small Italian town named Pico. Like Joe Verdi was to music, my grandpa Joe was renowned for the horticultural art of tree grafting. Tree grafting is when you successfully attach a branch from one tree onto another. For my grandpa, it began as a hobby. When he was 12 years old, he grafted a lemon onto the ancient olive tree in the front yard. That tree would soon become his colorful masterpiece. Each year, he would graft a new fruit branch onto the family tree. Soon, the drab green olives were sprouting beside branches of juicy lemons, oranges, grapes, and figs. Grandpa was fascinated by the idea of attaching one form of life onto another and watching them grow together in harmony. The neighbors all loved the wonderful sights and smells of our growing tree. They would often come by to pick fresh fruit from Grandpa's tree. My Grandpa Joe would not stop evolving his grafting talent. By the time he was 30 years old, he became obsessed with grafting different life forms to the tree. He began experimenting with Rico, the family dog. In 1914, Rico was successfully grafted to the tree, and my grandfather was one of the proudest men in Pico. He would walk the streets, smoking his pipe, telling all of the neighbors to visit his tree, as they would surely be surprised. The wonderful sights and smells of the tree were now accompanied by the sounds of our yappy old dog. Nobody could believe that my Grandpa Joe had changed the laws of modern science. What will you graft next, Giuseppe? asked his proud wife, Santina. Grandpa had not thought about it too much as he joked, Sandy, perhaps I will graft you to the tree. Shortly after, my grandfather had successfully grafted his own wife to the masterpiece. By the end of that year, the town priest, the entire Pico soccer team, an octopus, our symphony orchestra, and a fire truck were all grafted to the old olive tree. It looked as if a magical garden from outer space had landed on our front lawn. When the entire tree was buzzing and hollering, it sounded as though all of New York City had been grafted to it. Soon after this, the concerned mayor of Pico paid a visit to my grandfather and said, Well, Joe, I admire your work, but I am told that your tree is beginning to disturb some of the neighbors with all of the noisy tourists beginning to visit Pico. I'm sorry, but we will have to chop down the tree if this continues. Within an hour of his warning, the mayor had been grafted to the tree. My grandpa always used to say, politicians should never control culture. For months, my grandpa scratched his balding head, wondering which of his neighbors had complained. 
Was it Percy Crescenzo, the lonely old man who stayed at home, ironing his shirts all day? Was it Flavio Rosa, the Pico real estate agent, who so desperately wanted to sell our famous property? Or was it Signor Stronzo, the town chef, who was probably jealous of our tree's fresh produce? Somebody had it in for my grandpa, as he wrote a letter to his wife, who had grown so high into the tree that he could barely see her anymore. Dear Sandy, life is good down here on the ground. My work has never been more fulfilling than now. I miss you very much, and I'm planning to visit you very soon for a picnic in the sky. Your loving husband, Joe. Just then, he sealed the letter and gave it to his pet monkey, Pepe, to personally deliver to his wife, high in the branches of his famous tree. One morning in August 1921, the grafted roosters woke up the entire tree as usual. Soon after, my grandpa woke up too and smoked his pipe like any other morning. Except that fateful morning, there was a foreign sound emanating from the tree. It was the horrible roar of a chainsaw. My grandpa rushed outside to find a tree removal company hacking at his tree. The main stump was half cut by the time my grandpa could try and stop them. Big Foam Tree Removal Inc. had sent their largest bulldozer to kill our family tree. Flavio Rosa, the evil real estate man, was standing nearby with a grin on his face. You can't do this, my grandfather screamed. He ran to the giant saw and tried to stop their cutting. At that point, the entire tree was screaming in fear. On the contrary, Joe, you can't do this anymore, said the sleazy real estate man. The people of Pico deserve better than to be chained to the prison of your noisy tree. And we have sold your property to Big Foam Industries. You have until tomorrow to find a new home. I'm sorry, Joe. I did warn you of this, said the mayor from high up in the tree. And with that, the chainsaw had cut through the entire tree was left was the famous fall of my grandfather's legacy. Like no sound ever heard before, it crushed my grandpa's old house and everything inside. Our entire family history had been erased with one big thump. My grandpa was kneeling in the dust beside the butchered stump with tears running down his face and his pet monkey, Pepe, curled up in his lap. After the fall of our tree, there was a silence in Pico that had not been heard in years. And what broke the silence was my beautiful grandmother's voice. Oh, Joe, it's so good to see you again, she said. And like a true gentleman, my grandpa forgot about his woes and gave her a loving hug. Oh, Sandy, my dear, I missed you so much, he said, as his tears of sadness turned to joy. And the sun was shining down on my grandpa's dead tree 
as he and my grandma walked happily off their property, never to return again. And they left with only a trace from their old life in Italy, a seed from my grandfather's famous tree, and this story of our wonderful past. The end. Selection number nine, a eulogy for Uncle Vince. My Uncle Vince died too young in 2008, but he lived life to his fullest. Vincent Marcella stood as a giant among us. I cannot think of a more original character. He provided a model of rebellion that I subscribe to. He lived on the fringes of society, from the house he built with Aunt Wendy in Caledon East to his final project, the house he fixed up remarkably in a month and a half with Maureen in Port Credit. It's always as if he was showing off how bloody talented he was. In the 80s, Vince spent a good chunk of time running a pioneering business, Northern Innovations, which made biodegradable weed blockers called the Weed Collar. Arguably 20 years ahead of its time, he did all this while staying at home playing Mr. Mom and tending to his finest creation of all. Alexandria, his wonderful daughter. Vince oozed energy, creativity, and romanticism. He wanted too much from life, and he got it, for cheap. Vince knew that he was a genius. He wasn't humble at all. He'd tell you how great he was. The thing is, deep down, we all knew he was a genius too, which is why we'll miss him like no other. I figured out quite early in life that Vince was special. While other folks his age were signing on dotted lines, borrowing money, and acquiring mortgages, Vince somehow built a gigantic house in the middle of nowhere without a mortgage, inspired by folks like Thoreau and Emerson. Vince was an amateur philosopher, and by amateur I meant it in the French sense of the and by amateur I mean it in the French sense of the word, somebody who loved philosophy and the art of thinking. He loved music, which was a prominent element throughout his life. Vince understood my passion for music as well. We shared many interests, one of them being the work of Giuseppe Verdi, or as we'd jokingly jokingly call him, Joe Green. I faked it when he'd go on about Bocelli, but hey, I'm sure he did his amount, but hey, I'm sure he did his amount of faking whenever he came to see me perform in a wedding dress at one of the many downtown dives he would illuminate with his presence. Uncle Vince loved the good laugh, and loved a good story. I've never felt a deeper sorrow than I did losing him suddenly. This is real life, and he would have wanted his rich story to end with the high drama that it did. I assure you all that if Vince had survived the last punch that took his life, he would have shrugged it off and merely accepted it as part of his story. I assure you all that if Vince had survived the last punch that took his life, he would have shrugged it off and merely accepted it as part of the story. The last time I saw Vince, he assured me, with the confidence that only age brings, that life is full of peaks and valleys, like a, good, like a great piece of music, or one of the many stories he was known to embellish. Vince took life by the horns. He was born purple with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. From then on, we all know, from then on, we all should have guessed that he was a true gift from above, a special man we were all blessed to have served time with. 
Vince and I resonated with each other and loved one another like old friends. I'm sad on so many levels to have to deal with losing Vince. I'll never get another sack of potatoes from him at Christmas time. I'll never get another call to ask how I'm doing because he genuinely gave a damn about my life. I'll never again get to feel his spirit in a room. I'll never get another funny story. Like how when he lost his license, it wasn't a time to be sad. It was a time to think outside the box and get the grocery truck driver to cart him around town. When Uncle Vince rang the doorbell, you knew it was him. His character was like a flood in the room. I can see Vince at the gates of heaven right now telling St. Peter how much you pay for those pearly gates. You know I got a better gate for you. One I got on special from Johnny Sardelletti. It's got cast iron horses on it. One of the horses has a little spot of rust on it, but still. How much I paid for it. Guess how much I paid for it. Vince lived an opera, and I intend to write it. To a jack of all trades, to a jack of all trades, and a master of sun. To a jack of all trades and a master of some. Goodbye, Uncle Vince. Selection number 10. Hot Stuff. We were shocked when we found out that my grandpa had been living with cancer for decades. But it also seemed so noble to me. After losing his wife, he traveled to Italy every year just to show face, sit on his porch, and drink Moretti beer to ensure those silly squatters didn't take over a house that wasn't theirs. It's a shit system, he'd say, referring to European squatters' rights. Once the cancer had chewed its way through most of him, untreated and ignored like a pesky cavity, it was too late to do much. He was 87 years old and had gone to every funeral, including that of his youngest son. Life owed him nothing, but it still broke my heart when, appearing so frail, he asked my dad and I to help him clean out the garage. We found there two treasures that made me so sad to this day. One was a plastic bag with a homemade soap his dear wife had made him 20 years ago, from the good stuff, pig fat. The other was a small jar of hot pepper seeds from his garden. My grandpa, like most Italian men, was into burning his insides and forgetting his name with the stimulant known as the hot pepper. The look on his face when he knew that the game was over. To see those seeds wasted, it was clearly the end of an era. Selection number 11. Spaghetti sauce hand job. He was as fraudulent as they come. A guy who claimed he could bleed spaghetti sauce from the holes in his hands. And my mommy told me not to poke fun at Jesus Christ because it was sacrilegious. How was he getting away with it? This guy was the Jim Jones of Catholicism. Women got excited by his wet holes of blasphemy. The first time I caught wind of Padre Pio, I was eight years old standing in the front row at the funeral home for my mother's dead father. I had the foreign taste of makeup on my lips as I'd just been forced to kiss his cold, dead forehead. I sat there trying not to look at the corpse, trying not to think of how final it all is. Here's a guy you knew forever lying in a box, now lifeless for eternity. The time before birth is the time after death. I focused on the prayer card they gave each of us upon entry. The image of a bearded fraudster with spaghetti sauce oozing from each handhole. It wasn't Jesus. 
Did he have a lost cousin? Indeed. According to the stats on his prayer card, it seemed like he just died in 1968. On the back it read, Your grandfather is with me now. I'm rubbing his dead bald forehead with my spaghetti sauce hands to give him comfort at the time of his death. This his final sacrament. I am here to console him as Jesus was busy and I'm taking his overflow. Your time will come sooner than you think, kid. Take life by the chestnuts and make something of yourself, your pal Padre Pio. P.S. Don't tell anybody how I do the trick. Selection number 12. Fraud Sauce. When I was a kid, there was a show on television called Paolo's Kitchen Express. The chef Paolo would cook up some pretty basic meals, singing opera, and sipping vino between the steps of each recipe. His show was pretty dull, all things considered. From the faded color and the way it was shot, to his dishes and his singing voice, the whole show encapsulated those dull days growing up. Still, the dude was on TV, which was pretty cool to me as a kid. Years later, Paolo ended up working at a restaurant in my hometown. Between pasta meals, Paolo poked his big nose in from the kitchen. With his tall red chef's hat, Paolo reminded me of the Pope. Eventually, the rock star chef came and sat at our table. He gave my mom a rose. It was classy. My brother and I fawned over his television fame, and he said, I am just like your father. But my father wasn't famous for swilling wine and gussying up iceberg lettuce on television for decades. A few years later, we heard that Paolo got caught recycling half-eaten soup back into the pot. Then he got caught sleeping in the kitchen overnight with a bottle to keep him company. Poor old Paolo. He would die shortly after these dark tales began to pour in. It was the fall of a master chef. Selection number 13. Last Call. Near the end of his life, my brother and I took my grandpa Joe to the racetrack where he spent a great deal of his life. Certainly more hours were spent at the track than in church or even working. We knew that we wouldn't have much more time with this unique old man in our lives. My brother and I placed our bets super early like a bunch of novices. Old broken men were everywhere. The first race went by and my grandpa didn't even bet on it. He was busy scoping out a race in Australia on one of the TVs. A man yelled at the top of his lungs, Ride it out, JJ! Slap that ass! Slap that ass! While another man countered, Shut the fuck up! It continued, Ride it out, JJ! Shut the fuck up! And so on. We all chuckled at this highly entertaining public display of misery, PDM. I always loved those Bukowski poems that were set at the racetrack. For this, I have always had a soft spot for my grandpa's love of the track. He would always tell me with a cynical kind of love, Don't trust nobody, not even me. He'd seen so many people get burned over the years. He went to place a bet, but took so long to walk to the wicket he missed his chance. Reminded me of that old Rush lyric, The point of the journey is not to arrive. The day before he died, my grandpa and I had a shot of whiskey, and I'll bring that memory with me to my grave. He could barely down it because the cancer had eaten him away to nothing, but he sipped it in spirit, a stoic man to the end. 
A few years later, I drove his abandoned Chevy Malibu into the city. When I turned on the heat, it ignited that old smell from years of having been driven down to the horse track. It smelled like Noxema, which my grandpa often used for shaving. I swear I heard the radio spew, ride it out, JJ. Shut the fuck up. Selection number 14. A Saucy Sunset. Every year a summer comes to a close, we take every last tomato in the garden, and with that old rickety machine from the motherland, make spaghetti sauce. Our blood runs like sauce, and even though it's no longer a big savings compared to buying that store-bought crap, you taste the difference. An entire year's worth in one day, jarred into ancient glass heirlooms, in a questionably food-safe environment, wasps and flies all over, the smell of tomatoes was pungent, a cauldron of red like a haunted bathtub. Every family has its unique traditions, their own twist on the process. Some put a basil sprig at the bottom of each jar, some boil it thick while others prefer to have it the consistency of water. Spouses shouting in the sanctity of their suburban garages. All that pent-up frustration and sorrow sealed into every jar. Each one is a time capsule of red misery. The cold cellar, with all those jars lined up for an eternity. Or at least until next summer. It's the end of another year. And may each weekly bowl of pasta bring us all closer together. The end. Thank you.